here to class tonight. The pulpit clock says it's 7.01. I bet that many of you didn't even know there was a clock up here. Sometimes you wonder, you know. But uh, there is a clock up here to remind the speaker what time it is, and now it's two minutes after. So um, I guess we should start. I welcome all of you here. It's good to see you. I hope you've had a good day. <clears throat> there are certain thought patterns that are common to people everywhere. As we go about our lives in the routine, day-to-day -day manner that we do, we rely on these patterns to make decisions rather than think things out and make a wiser choice. And one of those will be the focus of our lesson tonight, which is the seventh in this series on the strategies of Satan. He knows all about this particular thought pattern, and he uses it to wreck and ruin our lives physically and spiritually. To get this type of thought pattern before our attention, let's look at some simple examples. A man and his wife enter a restaurant. The host asks them, do you want the table here in the front or the one in the back? And they say, we don't care. It really doesn't make any difference. Or a family leaves church and gets in the car and immediately the question comes up, where we're gonna eat after church today? At a Mexican restaurant or maybe at Cracker Barrel? And the answer comes, we like both places. It really doesn't make any difference. Or in planning a summer vacation, a family talks about it and the question is, will it be to the mountains or will it be to the beach? And the consensus is, it really doesn't make any difference. We don't care, we like them both. Such alternatives in decisions faces us all the time. And we really don't care so much of the time which alternative to take. Really, we might not even want to spend any time thinking about it. We just want to decide something and, and move on. We feel it really doesn't make very much difference. In a casual, usually brief assessment, we don't expect the consequences of one choice a lot of times to be much different than those of the other choice. In so many cases, we're not really interested in either one of the choices. We wish we really didn't have to make it or even think about it. For example, during those years that I taught in Nashville, 63 to 91, we often had to attend, we had to do it two or three times a year, attend area-wide in service. There was about 5,000 teachers there. It was a big gathering. So we met in a large auditorium and we had speeches and stuff. And after that, we broke up into what were called small group sessions in various places, which really were scattered over Nashville. And I saw most of the time, no value in any of them. We had a schedule. So it really didn't matter to me which one I attended. I usually just went to the one that was closest or maybe in some cases had the best looking speaker. And I spent the boring session of those small group gatherings fighting sleep or maybe 
filling up a, a notepad that we were given with uh, droodles. I really did that. The best part of such in-service meetings was the announcement at 2.30. You're dismissed. You can go home. And we left with great interest and enthusiasm. Seldom was the time that I picked up anything of much value in those kind of meetings that I could take back to school and use in my classroom to advantage. But folks, any decision that you make, whether it's great and momentous or seemingly very small and insignificant, has consequences. And sometimes an indifferent decision can lead to a very good result. A person may discover something important or useful or really meet a good person and thank God they made that choice. Example, July 1960, I'd finished my freshman year in college and come home and a good friend of mine in high school who hadn't gone to college invited me to go on a double date with him. I really wasn't interested in dating at that time, but to have something to do, and especially to please that friend, I decided to go. I didn't expect much, but I got much. That night I met a young lady who totally fascinated me. In just two or three hours, I was filled with fascination. Meaning and purpose began to come into my life day by day. She was truly a pearl of great price, and she's adorned my life now for the 63 years that have passed since then. That was an offhand, indifferent decision, but it led directly to consequences that I would not change if I could go back to July the 10th, 1960, two days before the date, and say, I don't want to go. Of course, it doesn't matter. Choices often go in the opposite direction, and the consequences are devastating. Let me give you an example. Some years ago, a man wrote a book that became a bestseller and really affected American thought for a while. It was entitled, 18 and No Time to Waste. I've read that book. I got it at home. It's the story of a young woman who went to a party and decided to eat a cookie that had LSD on it. It's called dropping LSD, one drop on it. She came from an excellent home. She was beautiful. She was very talented in different ways. When she was given that cookie, she thought it really doesn't make any difference. The book that was written by her father describes her rapid decline into drug use. You see, she did manage to keep a kind of a diary or journal through everything that happened, but she quickly descended into heavy drug use. Then she ran away from home and began to live with druggies on the street. She prostituted herself in order to buy the drugs. Within a year's time, she died. 
before she was 19 years old. The thought pattern of, it really doesn't make any difference, can be expressed in one simple word, indifference. It has two major characteristics. First, it's the result of careless, lazy, default thinking. And second, it does not consider consequences beyond the immediate and the superficial. Satan knows all about this easy, common thought pattern, and he uses it to great effect in overflowing the lives of people and destroying them spiritually, and that's why we're looking at it tonight. He wants us to think that it really just doesn't make any difference in life situations, even when the Word, and especially when the Word of God is involved. You know, we might be careful when there's a direct command, very evident, but then become very careless when without a direct command, you have to consider Christian principles and put some thought into it. Christians typically know the direct commands and they respect them. But applying the principles of righteousness and decency and order principles are many times ignored, not even considered. If a decision is not governed by a plain thou shalt or thou shalt not, many of us think the issue really doesn't matter. In a conversation within in this building within two weeks ago, I was told that. We don't bother to follow the logic of, of applying Christian principles. But folks, if there had to be a direct commandment for everything, our Bible would become like the Jewish encyclopedia, not encyclopedia, but Talmud, a set of 22 volumes. Who could deal with that? Logic takes time. It takes mental effort. It takes focused attention. But many Christians are impatient. They're mentally lazy. They have short attention spans. If something can't be resolved in 20 seconds, they just don't pay attention and it let it pass by. They won't listen, they won't think, they're easily distracted. I've seen it all my life. Satan uses these weaknesses of ours to reach this conclusion. Well, really, it doesn't make any difference. But very often, seemingly insignificant matters have a great a much greater significance than we can imagine that they have. And thus a choice is made that Satan can jump in and exploit to lead us into sin and to subvert us our, our spiritual integrity. He is happy. God is very displeased. And the person between Satan and God is separated from his God and drawn to the wrong side. What I want us to do next is look at some specific biblical examples. There will be three of them. And each of them involves this it really doesn't matter attitude or idea in making a decision. But the Bible shows that it wrecked the person who made that decision. For the first case, go with me to Genesis chapter 4. The first where there is the first report of people worshiping God. Abel and Cain 
must have been in, instructed by God as to what to do or they would not even have known to worship in the first place. And we read there verbatim from the text, 3 through 5, Genesis 4. It came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground and Abel of the firstlings of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no respect or regard. It's obvious that earlier God had told them three things. One, to worship by making a sacrifice. Second, to offer a lamb from the flock. And then third, to offer the fat portions of that lamb. You know, God only requires of you and me what he has instructed. This is made clear in Romans 7, 7, where Paul wrote, I would not have known or have come to no sin except through the law, for I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But once God has spoken, we must observe what he has said in all particulars, adding nothing to it and omitting nothing that we don't like. Cain was a farmer. He was proud of the beautiful vegetables and fruits that he grew. They were result, the results of his very hard work and of God's blessings. So he made a decision. It really doesn't matter how you worship as long as you're sincere and bring your best. And folks, that idea rules still today, thousands of years later. When God rejected his offering because he disregarded instructions and, and instituted what pleased him, Cain, the most, Cain became, he kind of lost it. Verse 5 says, so Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. That means he began, or he put on a big frown. He must have thought, hey, worship is worship. I worshiped, bringing the best that I had. I was sincere. I was reverent. It ought not to matter that I offered beautiful vegetables and fruits rather than those ugly, messy, bloody portions of slaughtered sheep. That was the way Cain must have thought. But folks, it did matter. It mattered because it was what God had instructed. And the one to be pleased was God, the one being worshiped. Folks, worship is always to please God, not ourselves. It's hard for people today to understand that and think about it and live by it. People come to church and think, this is boring. I'm not getting anything out of this. I don't enjoy it. It doesn't lift me up. I, I, me, me. The object of the worship is to please myself. That's not what we're here for. We're here to worship the one who is above, to please him to make him satisfied. It doesn't matter whether it pleases us or not. Now it should. It should please you. It should make you happy. 
to, to worship God as he has said. If you do it, you may not like it at first. It may be boring and so forth. But if you do it with a good spirit and Christian growth, it'll come to the place you will love it. To me, it's like the first fish and ships commercial that was uh, used in public advertising in the United States. It was back sometime in the 60s. A company from England brought it in. It was called H. Salt Fish and Chips. That was before you had all of the fish and chips places that are around today like Captain D's and Long John Silver and other places. It was H. Salt Fish and Chips. And they had a commercial on TV and a man was sitting there at a table and before him he had fish and chips. And he said, I used to hate them till I ate them, but then he went to town on it. Folks, you might not like worship when you first begin it, but remember what I said. If you do it anyway and do it with faith and think about what you're doing, satisfying the one above, you will come to love it. You see, what mattered in the case of Cain was not what he thought and felt. It was his duty, as it is ours today, to respect God's will and to learn in faith and love with reverence and awe to find pleasure in worshiping God according to his will. As God looked down upon Cain's anger and fallen countenance, he said something that we must notice. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? You'll turn a frown into a smile. And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. God used a simile here to warn Cain. He likened sin to a wild animal crouched outside the entrance to a house or a home, waiting for the occupant to come out carelessly to pounce on him. If we take that animal to be a lion, we have exactly the picture of 1 Peter 5 and verse 8. Be on the alert, your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walks about seeking someone to devour. Folks, Satan wants you to think there is no danger in thinking. This decision, whatever it is, really does not matter. There's no problem here. After all, doesn't the song go, in the jungle, the quiet jungle, the lion sleeps tonight. I won't afflict you with the rest of it. But folks, that might be true in Africa where Simba is on the loose in the wilds. But it's that he might sleep at night, but it's not true with the devil. He doesn't need to sleep. As a roaring lion, he prowls around. He's always awake. 
He's lurking in the jungle of life all about us to become his dinner. All you have to do is just think, hey, this doesn't make any difference. Folks, the bones of the victims of their own indifference scatter the path of human history all the way back through time where Satan left them when he was finished, all the way back to the, fir to the first, Cain's. Now for the next case, go with me to 1 Kings 13, where Satan sent a prophet from Judah up to Bethel, where Jeroboam had set up an altar with a golden calf and was teaching the Israelites to worship it rather than Jehovah. The Lord instructed this prophet that he chose to do four things. One, condemn that idol worship strongly. Second, don't eat anything up there. Third, don't drink anything up there. And fourth, when you come back, come by a different road than the one by which you went. This unnamed prophet did a marvelous job in following these directions. When he got to that altar, he stood right up to Jeroboam the king in his face and to the high priest in his face who was officiating there. He told them what was what without mentioning a word. And when the king invited him to eat at his own table, he said, I can't. I can't eat there, I can't drink your wine. And then when he left, he started back to Judah by a different road. He had almost done everything that God had told him to do perfectly. But Satan was on the scene and he saw an opportunity. How can I wreck this man? You know, Satan has a bag of strategies. That's what we're looking at night by night. He pulled out the one called indifference that we're talking about tonight. This it doesn't matter line of thinking. To apply it, Satan used an old prophet that was there at Bethel who heard about this man from Judah and his mission up there among them. So this old man followed the prophet as he went and he called out to him and appealed to him. And I'm going to read this encounter verbatim from 1 Kings 13 beginning in verse 14. So he went after the man of God and found him sitting under an oak and he said to him, are you the man of God who came here from Judah? And he said, I am. And then he said to him, well, come home with me and eat bread. And he said, I cannot return with you. I cannot eat your bread. I cannot drink your water in this place. For a command came to me from the word of the Lord, you shall eat no bread nor drink water there and do not return by the way which you uh, came. But this old prophet said to him, hey, I am a prophet just like you are. And an angel has spoken to me, the word of the Lord saying, bring that man back to your house and give him bread to eat and water to drink. Notice those last five words there of verse 18. They're extremely important. But he lied to him. He was a prophet, but he lied to him. Verse 19. 
So this man from Judah went home with him, and he ate bread in his house and drank his water. You see, this man of Judah faced a decision to follow God's clear instructions that he had received directly from God or to listen to and believe what this older prophet was telling him. And here evidently was his conclusion, it really doesn't matter. I'm a prophet, he's a prophet. I'm starving, I'm dry as a gourd, I'm tired out, and he's offering me food and water and a cool place to rest. So he took this old prophet's offer and he went home with him. How did God think about that? Well, God condemned him for his choice. Even while he was sitting in that man's house at his table, eating his bread and drinking his water, what God had told him really did matter. Not 98% of it, 100% of it. Not most details, every last detail. We're to learn from that. Then we're told in verse 24, now when he had gone, a lion met him on the road and killed him. And his body was thrown on the road with the donkey standing beside him. And the lion was standing by the, bo by the body. Folks, donkeys and lions don't stand beside each other. There was a miraculous element in this. God had prepared and sent that lion. It wasn't an ordinary lion. It was a lion of vengeance. Verse 18 says that the old prophet persuaded this prophet to eat bread and drink with him because the angel allowed it, but that he lied. You mean a man of God can lie? You bet they can, and they do. Satan was speaking through this old man to subvert this young prophet, and he succeeded. We can rightly conclude this because Jesus declared in John 8, 44, that Satan is a liar and the father of lies. Folks, the truth is of God. The lie is of Satan. When a person lies, he is making Satan his father. His strategy of indifference is a form of lie because as we've seen in these two cases, it really does matter when God has spoken. We're accepting the hand that Satan deals us when we follow that popular idea. Hey, it really doesn't matter. For the third case, go with me to Numbers chapter 10. Numbers chapter 10, it clearly shows that the use of this it really doesn't matter attitude and thinking is wrong and what terrible results it can lead to. In this case, it was utterly disastrous. The priesthood and the sacrificial system had just been set up by Moses as God had instructed him to. Aaron was the appointed high priest and his sons were ordained priests to assist him. There, he had several sons, but two of them, I think the two oldest, were Nadab and Abihu. 
They had many duties in their daily work to perform in the worship of God. One of them was offering incense to God. This was a ritual, and they had been carefully instructed in exactly how to do it. One day, as they began this task, Numbers 10, verses 1 and 2, tells us how it went. Now, they, now they, I'll get it right in a minute. Now, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective fire pans, and after putting fire in them and incense on it, they offered strange fire before the Lord which he had not commanded them. And the fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. As these two men performed this ritual, something went terribly, badly, horribly wrong, and it aroused God's anger and caused him to immediately incinerate those two men. I mean, in common parlance, he zapped them. The answer is, what was it? What made God flare up this way? They altered one detail in the ritual as God had required it. One, there were many details. They substituted for one of them. They offered what is called strange fire, and God wouldn't accept it. The word strange there translates the Hebrew word tzur, tzur. That means something that comes from a foreign or alien source. The fire for the incense pans were supposed to come from one place, the altar of burnt offerings which was out in front of the tabernacle. For Nadab and Abihu to offer strange fire meant that they got it from somewhere else, an unapproved source. So here's the scenario. Here's the time to offer the incense. And they needed some fire. Where are they going to get it? Supposed to get it from that altar of burnt offering out there. You're going to have to walk a ways to get there. But there was fire right there inside the, the tabernacle. Candles were burning lamps, actually. One lamp had seven parts to it. So they thought, well, it really doesn't matter where we get the fire. These that are burning right here in the tabernacle are fire. So they got the fire from one of them. There wasn't any other place to get it. What difference does it really make? Fire is fire. If you stick your hand in the flame of a lamp, it will burn you just as much as if you stick it in a fire out, on a, out somewhere. The fire from a lamp is exactly the same as the fire from burning coals out in front of the altar. What difference did it, does it really make? If you get the fire from anywhere, if it's fire, and you sprinkle incense on it, poof, a big a cloud of white smoke goes up that smells real good. So the effect is the same wherever the fire came from. What was wrong with this? The difference is not in the fire itself, but in what God had said to do. 
what he had instructed. The worship was of God. And God was the one and is today the one who is to be pleased. He told them where to get that fire from. From the altar outside, nowhere else to think it really doesn't matter. So let's just use the fire that's right here at hand. Disrespects God. Anytime you change substitute for or altar any detail of God's instructions from us, you are disrespecting him. Every detail of his instruction is important to him and he will not be satisfied unless we observe it all. That's what these cases are showing us, folks. Today we think, hey, this is 2023. That kind of rigidity is fastidious. It's finicky. It's being a stickler for details. Or in good Tennessee vernacular, it's being persnickety. But folks, don't dare apply those words to anything that God has told us to do. No one whom God has created has the right or the intelligence to judge him in what he has said and in what he requires of us. To choose something else is to defy God. And as these cases are showing, it don't work. Poor grammar, but a correct thought. Look where it took Nadab and Abihu. Fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them. Whoosh! Just picture them dancing about wildly as the flames were in, in, uh, engulfing them. In their last seconds, bitterly regretting the one detail they thought it didn't make any difference about. Folks, there are many people today, many, who are not satisfied with worship as it is instructed in the New Testament. The complaint is heard everywhere, and I've heard it throughout my life but more in later years. Folks, the worship that y'all do in that building up there, it's routine, it's dull, it's boring, it's, it's, not, it's unaffecting. And it's often said, I just don't get anything out of it. And folks, that attitude and that kind of thinking leads to making innovations, to bringing innovations into worship that have energy, feeling, and strong effect on the emotions they say that's what makes worship interesting and spiritually lifts you up. There's worship, as it's called, going on all around us tonight. It's high octane, great energy, a lot of movement to it. This is the, the rationale behind instrumental music, which the New Testament does not authorize in the slightest. Defending it, cannot be done from scripture. It has been tried in debates for 200 years and failed every time. The only appeal that you can make to defend instrumental music is human preference. And folks, we don't worship humans in our own preference. We're worshiping one above and he has said, sing. S-I-N-G, what's so hard about that? There is a strong movement in the church now and has been for the last few years 
to, so to speak, to use their language, revitalize it. Make it something that's inciting, entertaining, attractive to the masses of people. Brethren, what I've just said to you is nearly verbatim what you can read in religious literature if you'll just get some of it and read it. It's a common response to declining church attendance. We used to have 300 here. Now we've got 120. How can we get them back? Bring a band in here. Have people jumping all over the place as they speak and preach and, and lead singing and do everything. Have the people in the audience waving their hands, getting up and twirling in the aisles. Do all that kind of stuff. Wear yourself out physically and emotionally by the time the worship service is over. That will get people here. Folks, is not this Satan's influence at work convincing us that it really just doesn't make any difference? It takes attractions, or if it takes attractions, that are emotionally exciting and appealing to get people here and hold them. That's the logic of the end justifying the means, and it don't work. Bad grammar again, but a good thought, a good meaning. I believe there is a scripture that directly applies to this situation, and we need to consider it. It's 2 Timothy 2, verse 1. Realize that in the last days, difficult times will come. For men shall be lovers of themselves. Lovers of themselves much more than lovers of God. And then that statement is followed by a list of characteristic sins. Then in verses 4 and 5, it says that people in the last days will become reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness. That is, it, it looks like worship. It goes by that name, but they have denied the power thereof. Folks, it seriously, very seriously matters how we respond to this and not cater to those who love pleasure rather than God in order to hold up attendance and loyalty to the congregation. What matters seriously is that we respond to what verse 14 there says in 2 Timothy 2. Continue in the things that you have learned and become convinced of. Continue with them. Don't change anything. Don't add to it. Don't take anything out of it. We don't have the right to change the church, to accommodate and hold the masses. Thank you for your attention tonight.